Hey, so we have a Steve and a Stephen on here. So Steve, you're Steve Barkley. Stephen, you're Stephen Hartove. So thank you. Fair <laughs> enough. Do, do we have a Ryan and a Rob? How did you know that? <laughs> There's a participant list, Rob. <laughs> it's magic. Recording in progress. Hey, and welcome to another episode of AT Banter. Banter, banter. Uh, hey, this is, of course, the podcast where we talk with advocates and members of the disability community to educate and inspire better conversation about disability. Hey, my name is Rob Minot, and joining me today, Mr. Ryan Flurry. Hello, everybody. Mr. Steve Barkling. That would be Steve in the usage today. And, of course, who could forget Liz Malone? Oh, I forget every morning, but thank you. <laughs> uh, hey, well, listen, we have something for lined up for you folks today. Something a little different. Uh, I'm not going to spoil the surprise. What I am going to do, however, is I'm going to pass the reins off to our very own Liz Malone, and she is going to walk us through what the heck we're doing today. Well, what Rob is neglecting to tell everybody is that he's got a little something extra in his cup in addition to the coffee, but that's a whole other story. But thank you, Rob, for entrusting me for this week. Um, so we are going to just go slightly off the disability track uh, to talk about um, the commemoration of International Holocaust Remembrance Day, which is January 27th. So I think this episode will actually air afterwards, but January 27th is the actual day that we're uh, we're talking about. And um, so joining us today, we have a special guest to talk to us um, about this day about the Holocaust and some of the work that he does, which has a very interesting tie-in to um, the subject matter at hand. So Steve, tell us who's gonna be our guest today. Well, today we have yet another person who makes me feel like a total underachiever. <laughs> um, Seems to are, be a trend, right? Indeed, yeah, yeah. We are going to have on today, Stephen Hartov. Uh, Stephen, well, gosh, I mean, it depends on wh where you look for a write-up on this gentleman. Uh, he is uh, a former editor-in-chief of the Special Operations Report. He was an Israeli Defense Forces paratrooper. He's currently a major in the New York uh, Guard. Uh, see, he's been uh, in the U.S. Merchant Marine, uh, been in a couple of wars here and there, and in amongst all of that, he also managed to write uh, a good number of books and uh, stuff for magazines and stuff for film. So welcome, Stephen. Thanks for joining us. Well, good evening, everybody, and thanks for having me on for Happy Day. <laughs> <laughs> you guys invited me on to try to cheer up the audience on Holocaust Remembrance Day. I'll, I'll do my best, but thanks for the introduction. I do appreciate it. Well, you know, we, we were talking about show ideas a while back, Stephen, and, and uh, you know, it was, it was one of the things that was, I, I like to look at the International Day of lists to see for you know see what's on there for for story ideas and i i pitched the idea of doing this show out there and Liz it jumped on it and said i know a guy and you're that guy so yeah i guess i got lucky <laughs> <laughs> no i do appreciate being on i mean you know it's it's a serious subject obviously but um uh, you know it's it's not something that um is, is that easy to talk about i suppose but i do have some background in it so i can i can throw that in there because i come from uh refugees and Holocaust survivors. So I can, I can go for that and, uh, you know, tell you folks and the audience a little bit about what that's like, although they know, you know, most folks, I guess nowadays know an awful lot about that period of history. Some of our younger folks, I'm not quite so sure what the students are getting in schools nowadays, but people my age, and I'm not going to say exactly how ancient that is. We, we all know the stories. So I, I assume you all, all you folks know the stories as well. Correct. 
certainly. Yes, and and you know, and the other thing I would just add to that, Stephen, is that um, uh, aside from the approximately six million um, Jews who were systematically slaughtered during the Holocaust, um, there were other marginalized groups, um, including persons with disabilities, who were also thrown into that mix, who were who were also murdered. Oh, absolutely. Uh, there were tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of of all sorts of folks that the Germans and the Nazis regarded as undesirable from people with, uh, you know, mental challenges to people with physical challenges to people who had certain diseases. I mean, the, the Nazis wanted to rid themselves of anybody who might, um, how should we say, stain the bloodlines. So they went after all sorts of people, and that did include a lot of people with disabilities, many of whom were unfortunately experimented upon in the in in some of the camps just as the jews were and the gypsies who, who we refer to as roma um you know all sorts of people were maltreated by them but definitely uh, disabled persons were high on the list i think sometimes people also f don't realize or put into perspective that this happened less than 100 years ago i think sometimes we hear world war ii you think of it as being so distant, but this is not something that is really ancient history. No, I agree with you. And not only is it not ancient history, but we've been repeating this history, you know, in every decade in one form or another. I mean, you have slaughters in uh, Cambodia, you've had uh, slaughters in Africa, you have maybe not genocide on a technologically perfected scale, which I think is what shocked the world, that the Germans were so advanced in terms of uh, a society and a civilization and, and so scientific and so brilliant. So they turned murder into a methodology that nobody else had prior to that or since. But yeah, human beings keep killing each other on a grand scale. And uh, unfortunately, we seem to be very good at it. But yeah, um, sadly so. Yeah, it's it's not something that's going away, unfortunately, I don't think. Maybe we're more aware because of our connectivity and social media and rapid exposure to these sorts of things, but it's still ugly out there and probably will be for a while. I told you I was going to cheer you up. <laughs> I'm usually the one who brings the group down, so thank you, oh, Stephen, okay. for... <laughs> I'll help you out. I'll help you out. I'll help you out. I'll help you out. So what can I tell you about? You want to hear about my family's uh, Holocaust background? That might be interesting. No, ab absolutely. We want, we'd love to hear your your personal ties with um, with the Holocaust and um, and what it means to you. Well, you know, when I was a kid, I understood that my grandparents on my mother's side and the only ones who had survived were my mother's parents and my mom and her brother. So they were the ones in the family with the funny accents and they had come from Vienna. And as I grew older, uh, I began to hear, you know, or I began to, I was a very curious kid. And uh, so I would start to drag these stories out of them and discovered that, you know, my grandfather was a very successful uh, Austrian landowner. He had a large general store in a beautiful little town in Austria called Wiesenfeld. And he was sort of the town... Um, unofficial mayor. He wasn't the mayor, but people came to him with their problems. And he was a very beloved figure. And and he had served in World War One in the German army or the Austrian army, uh, Austro-Hungarian army, and he had won two Iron Crosses. So he was not, you know, he was not an outlier in, in uh, Austrian society. He was uh, pretty much a, a war hero and a, and a town hero. And as uh, the Nazis came to power in the 30s and things started to go hard for the Jews, as many Jews in Austria and Germany believed at the time, they said, well, it's not going to get that bad. You know, this is a passing thing. Uh, they're using us as a scapegoat because uh, economically World War I was so hard on the Germans and now they're blaming us, but that'll go away. Well, it didn't go away. No. So I... Uh, um, many folks have heard of uh, something called Kristallnacht, Kristallnacht, which was an event in 1938 in November where the Nazis, looking for an excuse to come down really hard on the Jews, um, took an event, which was a young 17-year-old 
a Jewish kid in Paris killing a, uh, a Nazi diplomat at the German embassy. And that was their, their sort of trigger so that they could persecute the Jews. And they burned 30,000 Jewish businesses in Germany and Austria. They burned 269 synagogues or something like that. They killed hundreds of Jews. People rioted against the Jews in the streets. And that was, that was the sort of the turning point for my family. So the Nazis came and rounded up my grandfather and my uncle Eric, my mom's brother. My mother was about 12 at the time. And they put them in prison. They rounded up all the women and children and uh, stuck them in a warehouse, cold warehouse somewhere. Um, they picked up my great uncle uh, Otto and sent him to Dachau. And um, at that point, my grandparents realized it was time to get out of Dodge. So they sent my uncle here when he was 16 years old. They managed to get him a visa. He, in turn, from here, could not figure out how to get my grandparents out. So he wrote a letter to President Roosevelt and actually got an answer and a visa for the parents, which is just a miraculous thing. I mean, it was one of those fluky things. Wow. So they got out. My grandparents, my mom and her brother, uh, great uncle Otto was released from Dachau after about eight months and killed himself. Um, most of the rest of the family was rounded up and sent to either Auschwitz or Tresenstadt or something. Most of them were, you know, were killed by the Nazis. So, but my mom and her parents were really happy, jolly people, they did not dwell on this sort of thing. And we were raised to think, uh, not in terms of victimhood, but in terms of liberation, if you know what I mean. It was not something to wallow in. It was some, something to be celebrated as survivors. So that's how I was raised. And that led me on, uh, you know, my own particular path and journey, which took me to Israel. And I, you know, first I was in the US, I, I left college in the middle of college, I eventually went back and got my degree. But I was one of those kids who had to find adventure. And I joined the Merchant Marine, I wound up in Israel, later, I joined the Israeli Army, I was a paratrooper there. Uh, I was in special operations there for a while. And then that all sort of coalesced into me deciding to, to, to be a writer, a novelist. And and that's how that followed. Now, I suppose if you were a shrink, you could figure out exactly what it was that I was following and why. And a lot of it had to do with the family background, I'm sure. But not being a shrink, I just did what I did. And um, that was basically our you know, sort of background Holocaust lucky to survive story because most of the family went up in smoke. You know, Stephen, that story says so much about your latest writing, your current, uh, your current release, um, and we're gonna, we are gonna definitely talk about that. But, um, but if if I could just just take a step back, and you start to touch upon, so tell us about how you actually got into becoming a writer. You know, I think it was one of those things, and many of us go through this, where we're not aware when we're kids that we're being, we're going down a path that doesn't come to fruition until much later. Um, this is interesting, Liz, because, I, and I don't mean to push this toward my, my writing, but I'm going to anyway. When the first book, after the Hardy Boys and all those kids' books that you get, you know, when you're nine years old, the first book that my mother ever handed me to read, adult book, was something called The Guns of Navarone. Uh, which is I a, remember that a, movie well. Remember the movie? Well, it was yeah. a famous book by Alistair MacLean. And I was just enthralled by that. And thereafter, I was no longer interested in children's books. It's like, you know, I devoured adventure books and that sort of thing. And then later, I re started reading the classics, Hemingway and all those guys. But it wasn't until I was in the IDF for a couple of years and uh, came home to my flat on leave one weekend that I took out 
pulled out an old typewriter and said, I got to get some of this stuff down before it goes away. And I think that's when I started to, to sort of lean toward writing, you know, wanting to write for a living. Um, so that was my path, but I was leading you in a, in a, in a direction list. So the guns in Navarone was my first and most favorite book as a child. And my latest novel, which is coming out in the, in the, in the summer called, uh, the last of the seven just got reviewed by the famous author, Stephen Pressfield, who opened his review by saying, this is like the guns of never. <laughs> You've come full circle, right? Yes. I finally ripped off McLean. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was pretty much it. Actually, my degree was in theater. Um, I thought I wanted to be an actor. And I got a, a degree from the School of Fine Arts at Boston University. And, but I got that degree, went to the Middle East for a number of years. I came back to New York uh, to actually try to make a go of that. I was writing a novel already, but I figured, you know, you've got this degree, try to make a go of this. And I, I did the theater and audition thing and TV commercials and such for a while. And then... Mm, I had to go do reserve duty. I had to go to a war. I came back from that and I was sitting around one night having dinner with a bunch of actors and, and I had just come back from Lebanon and they were all complaining about their headshots. And I thought I'm not spending the rest of my life this way. So that was that. So I went on to, I dumped that whole aspect of my life and stuck to the writing because it's much easier to be a surly writer alone in an attic than to have to socialize <laughs> that god isn't that ryan isn't that your your uh, your life philosophy too what hide in the attic <laughs> <laughs> hey if the room fits <laughs> that's right i don't so, hide i just prefer it <laughs> I like seclusion also. Yeah, there you go. Well, there you go. I, I get a lot done in that quiet room. Do you find the writing is also therapeutic? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, when I'm done with this, you guys are all going to wind up in a novel. <laughs> <laughs> I, I uh, always loved that Robert A. Heinlein quote, writing, writing is not necessarily something to be ashamed of, but do it in private and wash your hands afterwards. <laughs> No, it is therapeutic. I mean, there there are many demons that you you know expunge by um, you know putting pen to paper. Uh, yeah, there are people who have appeared in my books who who wish they hadn't. Hmm. Um, if they're lucky, I change their names. If they're lucky, <laughs> I've gotten into trouble uh, with family members by writing characters who were much too close to the truth and and easily discernible. Hmm. Do you do that disclaimer like they do on that show, Law and Order? It depends on, upon the disclaimer. <laughs> if the one that says any, no characters herein are based upon, you know, real people. Yeah. <laughs> I usually say all, as a matter of fact, my last book, I say almost all the characters and events in this book are based on real people and real events. So I'm so at that stage. I'm at that stage in my career where they can come after me. So if you don't like it, go F yourselves, right? Basically, yeah. It's, 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 it's the Ricky Gervais novelist theory. Take, take it up with me at my next book signing. Yeah, something like <laughs> that. Well, I think it's, it's rare that, well, it's very rare that we have a, uh, a New York Times bestselling author um, on our show. And we certainly have people who are authors, and um, I, I think that there's plenty of listeners out there who are aspiring writers, God, myself included. <coughs> Excuse me, choke, choke, wink, wink. Um, but uh, I, I think that one thing we haven't ever had a chance to do is just sort of pick your brain a little bit about what tips would you give somebody who is maybe in the process of trying to pen a book? Oh, interesting. Um... You know, there's so many things, you know, when you get to be an old cranky writer, there's so many mistakes that you've made that you wish other people would not make. Um, the, the greatest issue for aspiring writers is discipline and fear. 
most people don't don't finish a book. They dream about writing a book, but they won't finish it because once it's done, it's going to be judged. That's the fear part. And the other part is that writing is just like carpentry. You have to, you know, if you want to build that table or whatever it is, you just got to go out to the workshop and do it every day. And people make incredible excuses. I'm too busy. I, you know, the kids, I this, I that, I don't feel it's not coming to me. It's a blank page. I've got writer's block, which doesn't exist, by the way. So, you know, it's, it's really a question of, it's, writing isn't an art, it's a craft. And like any other craft, you have to get out there and, and you know, sand the floor or it just ain't going to happen. Now, I'm reading for the second time a brilliant book, and I'm not pitching Steve's book because he's hugely successful and doesn't need me to pitch him. I just would like to say to anybody who's a struggling writer out there, read Stephen Pressfield's Pressfield's The War of Art. Very short book. Anything you need to know about how to get yourself to the to the laptop or to the PC or your pen and make it happen is in that book, The War of Art. Brilliant. So I have nothing to offer past what he's got to offer except what I've already said on that, which is basically you just got to do the work. You got to do it. And even if it sucks, you know, writing bad stuff is better than walking away from it. It's much like podcasting. Yeah, clearly a man who's never read any of my writing. <laughs> <laughs> and you're clearly a man who probably doesn't know how good it is. Probably. You know, Rob, it, it is like podcasting because sometimes I'll meet people and then when in conversation they find out that I do podcasting and they you, get, you ever have people say to you, oh gosh, you know, I, I've got this great idea for a podcast. I want to do this. And they, they're already talking about like, well, I, this is how I'm going to promote it. And what do you think? I'm like, the first thing you should do freaking record something just there get a go. microphone record don't you, you can't promote something that you don't have a product yet so i'm like just record stuff you can delete it if it sounds terrible you can let your friends listen to it first before you you, you really publish it but um that's what i it's it's so it's similar in terms of you just got to actually do it doesn't yeah. matter if it's pretty just just get something down so you can start getting your chops there you go exactly right I'm still working on that, by the way. <laughs> and as I discovered along the way here, too, uh, look, looking into uh, your background, you've done a lot of uh, screenwriting work, too. Um, I, I noted uh, The Mercenary, starring John Ritter, uh, Mars with uh, Oliver Grunner and Sherry Belafonte, Acts of Betrayal with Maria Conchito Alonso, Thick and Thin with Sam Bottoms. I wish you hadn't mentioned those. <laughs> <laughs> How come? Is this, is this a cut? <laughs> nope. <laughs> nope. No, no, no. No, it's not a cut. It's not a cut. Those were part of my writer's journey, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't return that adventure for the world. It was awesome. It was uh, a couple of decades ago. I was invited out to Hollywood. Actually, I had a, I had a book called The Heat of Ramadan, which was my first published novel. And it was optioned by a big producer, Freddie Fields, who had, he had produced uh, big pictures like Glory. Remember that picture? Yeah. Uh, about the Civil War and so forth. So he had optioned my book and hired this, this uh, screenwriter director named Avi Nesher to do the screenplay. Well, long story short, as it often happens in Hollywood, it takes years and years for a deal to actually go down. So in the meantime... Avi needed somebody to write some scripts for him, some B-movie scripts. So I went out to Hollywood, and it was like those old stories you see about the 1940s where they stick the writer in the back lot on a, you know, in a little hut, and they, you know, they give him a fedora and a cigarette, and they say, all right, kid, give me 10 pages. And it was like that, and it was great. And the movies were awful. But the checks cleared, so it was all good. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I remember uh, uh, another uh, local writer here, a fellow named uh, William Gibson, um, 
I talked to him one time about the the process of of uh, making. Um, uh, he was hired to uh, to write one of the Alien movies. Uh, I've forgotten which one it was off the top of my right. head. Right. But uh, he he talked about the the writing, the rewriting, the, the the constant back and forth as as staff changed on the project, and then they eventually brought in somebody who was a a screenwriting action expert whose previous experience was apparently writing for the A team. And uh, he, he <laughs> sort of he sort of lost faith along the way and walked away from the project. Oh yeah, it's brutal. It's brutal out there. But if you just sort of embrace it and say, okay, I'm in Hollywood. I'm doing this thing, and you just sort of you know you just sponge it all up to use it in a novel later on. It's just great. And you know it was fun. And uh, as I said, the movies were awful, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> So you wouldn't recommend going back there and reviewing that body work? No, don't waste your time. <laughs> All right. As a matter of fact, eventually they made the heat of Ramadan into a picture uh, called The Point Men. Mm-hmm. And it, was, it starred Christopher Lambert. And the director was John Glenn, who had made a couple of really good Bond movies. But that script was bloody awful and it's you know the typical yeah i'm I'm just that typical novelist who they take a book of his they turn it into a movie he hates it because it's not like the book and once again the check cleared so i'll just shut up (laughs) (laughs) so let's uh, let's circle back to something that's much more current for you Stephen, and uh, let's talk about your book the soul of a thief which um, is set in during World War II, and um, it tells the story of a German soldier who's hiding his uh, his Jewish descendants um, and you know avoiding the death camps by basically concealing himself within the uh, the German army. So I, I think that this story sort of now is hearing you talk about some of your feelings um, from your own family and your upbringing and and your family's um, attitude towards. Um, towards being, you know, survivors. Um, so what exactly served for inspiration for this particular story? Yeah, it's interesting. That book came from, I know this sounds weird, but whatever. When I was a kid, I had this recurring dream. Now, I don't know if this came from my mother's background or for hearing the stories about Nazi Austria. It doesn't matter. I had this recurring dream about a Nazi colonel. And an SS colonel in the in well, I didn't know that where it was happening, and I can't describe the actual small event to you because it's very. This thing happens in in the book, and it's a very big scene. So I would be it's a ridiculous spoiler, but it doesn't matter. I would have this. I had this recurring dream about this guy, and it went on for many many years. And it wasn't until about the year 2000, one day when I was between projects that I woke up one night and I said, I know what this story is. I know who this guy is. Now, concurrent with that, I had another great uncle whose name was Alexander, and he was half Polish and half Austrian. He was a Mischling. He was half Jewish. In order to hide from the Nazis, and not be sent to a concentration camp, he joined the Luftwaffe. So he basically hid for a year and a half in the German Air Force, in the Nazi Air Force, until they figured out he was a Jew and sent him to Tresenstadt, to a concentration camp. He survived the war. So many years later, when I got to meet him and we spent a lot of time together, he would tell me about what this was like to be, you know, half a Jew. The term is Mischling. And there were actually 150,000 of them in, in the Wehrmacht, in the German army, which most people have no idea that there were that many mixed blood Jews who were conscripted or had to serve. Or, But at any rate, his telling me this story about what it was like to be in the Luftwaffe and pray every day that nobody would find out, I, those two things coalesced together and this story just popped into my head and it felt like, I mean, many writers say this, sometimes it feels like you're driving the story, sometimes it feels like the story's driving you. This was one of those things where 
I just, I sit down to write every day when the muse struck and it just rolled right off my fingers. So I was probably cooking it for decades, but that's, that's how that book came to be. Wow. And that book makes lots of people very uncomfortable. So it's good. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a, there's a, a, a lot of, um, uh, I guess, I mean, how do I phrase it? Poignant moments in the book where I think definitely you, 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 you push the limits, but it's, but that's, but that's what happens in life. That's real. It's in that sense. Um, but it's, yeah, a, it's, it's a, that was, it's, that was the point. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, point. yeah. And I think that that, that really comes through and, um, but I, I don't think it should shy anyone away from reading it. Um, uh, you know, wartime was ugly. Um, the world is ugly at times. And so, but I think you've really captured that in that book. Um, so that book is is available right now. Um, you can get it on Amazon. It's also available Barnes and Noble, etc. Um, but uh, you also have a new book coming out this summer, which I can't wait to get my hot little hands on this off when it's fresh off the press. And um, it's called The Last of the Seven, and um, it's based upon the uh, I guess the little known X Troop, which. Uh, okay, I admit I'm not a history buff. I I didn't know anything about the X Troop. Um, Steve, I think you you were familiar with the X Troop. I was not familiar with the X Troop. I was I was familiar with the idea of the X Troop via a uh, rather nasty Tarantino movie. <laughs> what, what? In, in Glorious Bastard. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a great movie. I love that movie. It's crazy, but I love it. <laughs> Yeah, so I, I was just hoping that maybe you could give us um, uh, a bit of a plot, a plot overview for um, the last of the seven, and um, because I'm sure that I'm not the only one out there who does not know about the X Troop. Well, actually, um, this is based on a group of Austrian, German, and French Jews who were recruited by the British Army in North Africa into combat in North Africa in 1942, and they. They actually had a training camp where they um, only spoke German, dressed in, you know, Africa Corps uniforms, only had Africa Corps equi equipment, only read German paper. I mean, they were full on in, in character all the time. And uh, they would infiltrate German lines and carry out commando raids. They would escort British commandos, the SAS, into, you know, behind German lines. It was super secret for years and years and years. And um, so my story begins in North Africa with one of these guys. X Troop was the more formalized commando unit from British Number 10 Commando. And they actually operated later on in the European theater. So my story sort of drifts from North Africa to Sicily and then to Northern Germany. So I, I don't want to give away the, the, the whole story, but um, so that's the, these fellows. And there were actually quite a few of them who had escaped um, Nazi Germany and Austria and parts of France, particularly along the German border and had joined the British army you know, to take on the Nazis and exact revenge. Most of them were orphans. Their families had been killed um, and they were pissed. <laughs> so they were, um, they were some hardcore commandos. Yeah, your characters are definitely not wallowing, as you said earlier about uh, the way you were taught. These are definitely, um, there's a, a good helping of badass and you, you know, you can't help but um, really root for these characters and um, just get behind, uh, you know, the, I guess, the whole storyline that, that you create. Um, and uh, so when, when you're writing something that is so tied into history, what kind of research is involved and entailed in making sure that you're, you're, you're getting everything um, as accurate as possible? A lot. Um, <laughs> a lot. I read from numerous sources to cross-reference. I mean, obviously, lists. I'm not using, you know, I, I did use some, some, some of the characters are real people because they were so elemental to what happened in North Africa or Sicily and so forth. I do a lot of research about the time period, 
the settings, the equipment, the proper nomenclature. And then when I'm done with a book like this, since it has Italian, French, German, and a lot of British English in it, I actually hire people who know those things better than I do to check the manuscript and make sure all those things are accurate. Um, so yeah, it's a lot of work. I mean, that book, this book took me two and a half years. Um, and it's just going into review galleys now. So it takes a while, but I enjoy that. So, you know, it's fine. We've got to make it real. Right. And do you find that the, the process is a, a different when you're, when you're sort of writing nonfiction versus fiction versus historical fiction, or does it kind of all blend together in terms of the process? Um, they're not remotely alike, actually, for me. Nonfiction, I'll give you an example. Uh, I wrote uh, a New York Times bestseller called In the Company of Heroes. That's a nonfiction book that I wrote with Michael Durant. And Mike was the helicopter pilot who was shot down in Black Hawk Down, the one who Black Hawk Down is about. He was shot down, he was captured, he was held prisoner for 11 days, then he was liberated. So when I wrote that book with Mike, it's a completely different process. We would meet uh, somewhere, either where he lived or at an airport or whatever, because we didn't live in the same place. And I would record his story. Uh, you know, it's more like when you do that, when you write a sort of a autobiographical nonfiction book as the writer, that's me, you're sort of a therapist. You have, to, you have to drag stuff out of people sometimes that's very difficult for them to talk about. I did the same thing in the book thereafter called The Night Stalkers, which is really tough because I had all these special operations pilots who just, you know, it's very hard to talk about combat. It's rare that you find somebody who just, you know, talks about it like it was a baseball game yesterday. So that's a completely different process. Then you take the recordings home, you listen to them over and over again, and you have to turn that into a compelling narrative. And it's a compelling narrative on, on tape, but you have to take that and put it on paper and edit it as you go. It's a, it's a whole different thing, completely different than than a novel where, you know, you're the king and people will do exactly what you want them to do. It's very soothing. This topic is, it's, it's very, it's very, you know, it's, it's serious yet. It's this, it's a very fascinating and um, revealing conversation because I think that Steve in your world is so foreign to so many of us, but we all, we all interact with books. Um, all the time, but I think we never really get to see how the sausage is made, you know? Yeah, right. No, totally. So it's, and it's, 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 it's messy. Okay. It's sort of like oh. being in the editing process of the podcast, which we were discussing before, um, before you came on that it is, it, it, it's, it's just part of the process. It's part of the craft, but yeah, it, you, you get a little dirty sometimes. Yeah, you guys are going to edit me down to 10 minutes, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> we do it all the time to ourselves. No, it's, that, that's so interesting because cause that particular story, uh, Black Hawk Down, I mean, that's, you know, that's, those are real life events that feel like, I mean, you almost couldn't write that for a movie. Like it, it's, it's, it's one of those stories that's, that's almost more sensational and more amazing than anything that any scriptwriter could come up with in a writing room. Yeah, I, I it was a little bit uh, it was intimidating because you know you're telling us I knew it was going to be very hard for my partner for Mike because he had never talked to anybody about these events and the events that he went through were pretty horrific and um, that was tough. It turned out to be therapeutic for him, and it often is when you you know not when you're you know, when you're co-authoring with somebody who writes about the stock market, it's not traumatic, unless it's the Wolf of Wall Street, maybe. But it was a very interesting and difficult process, but uh, we pulled it off pretty well together. Um, the, the other book, The Night Stalkers, 
in the company of heroes was just me and Mike working together. That was it. And the night stalkers was me, Mike and uh, Colonel Robert Johnson, who's a fantastic person. He's, he was a, <laughs> this guy, he was a black Hawk pilot in the invasion of Granada. Hmm. And, um, while he was inserting SEAL Team 6 or 8, I can't remember which SEAL Team it was, he took a bullet right through the bottom of the, of the Black Hawk that blew out his knee, and he still had to fly. I mean, these guys are, you know, these, are, these guys are quiet superheroes, and one story after another just blew me away. But um, that was a fascinating book to do as well. It's totally different than novel writing. Novel writing, you're in your own world. You create it. You change it. You know, it doesn't have to be accurate to any sort of fact necessarily because you're making it up. Do you, do you ever find that that experience, though, writing writing in the nonfiction world sort of informs some ideas later on when you're sitting down and you're, you're going to write a work of fiction? Absolutely. I, in particular, I do something else, too. I do ghost writing. So... I sometimes get hired to write big thrillers for people whose names I cannot say because contractually that's how that works. You know, I don't appear on their covers. They're tired of writing their books, whatever. Um, so I will do that once in a while. And I'll pull from stories from other people, from my own experience. You know, I'll, I'll, sew things together. I will have heard somebody tell me something that's crazy and I'll stick it in one of their novels and nobody knows that this actually happened to somebody, but I do, you know, so that's kind of fun. So if you guys want to tell me like, you know, really wicked life stories, I'll stick them in books somewhere. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I got nothing. I got nothing. Liar. <laughs> I heard you wrestled alligators once. <laughs> That's a rumor. Okay. I will not confirm nor deny. Right. I heard she. I heard she wrestled a bartender. But <laughs> all right, that, another that one. To, that totally happened. <laughs> that was last night. <laughs> we have an we have an ex coworker that was uh, in the Merchant Marines, and one night he was drunkenly stumbling back to his ship and got attacked by monkeys. Um, so I don't know. Gibraltar. Yes, Walter, Walter, yeah. yes. So maybe that we can take that and turn it into something, I don't know, some sort of a thriller with killer monkeys. I think it'd be better uh, as a Laurel and Hardy movie. Maybe, but you could certainly open the film that way. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, I for one, I absolutely love hearing and witnessing how sausage is made because I freaking love sausage on, on top of that. But I, Steve, I mean, you know, I can talk to you all day and I, I think that you... Your writing, your your fascinating human, your background, your your knowledge, and I think I'm always a better person having having known you and and just getting so much wonderful life and professional perspective from you. So I just want to remind people: um, the soul of the thief, the soul of a thief, is available now. The last of the seven will be out this summer. Do we have a date on that, Stephen? Um, and thank you for for saying all that. Uh, I'll send you a check later. Yes. Um, August, uh, last of the seven uh, is comes out in August. I think it's in pre-sale now, but you know, it's, it's way too early to buy a book like that because you know it'll show up. You'll forget why you bought it. But, uh, <laughs> but that's if you want if anyone out there wants to jump on Amazon though, and they want to look up the last of the seven to um, at least read an overview on on the book and see the beautiful cover, um, it is up there and. Um, Stephen, also, can you give us some information about your social media, how people can find you? Uh, Twitter, um, just my name, Stephen Hartov, author, and the same thing. I'm on, uh, I also have a Facebook page that does the same thing. I'm on Instagram, my name, and my last name's H-A-R-T-O-V. And uh, yeah, you can find me pretty, pretty easily by just Googling, and that'll take you to all those places if you want to interact with me. And uh, I do like Twitter um, because I stick pretty much in the writing community and don't get into all the craziness that people get into on Twitter. So it's really kind of pleasant in that in that group. 
any aspiring writers out there, definitely follow him. Um, it's at Stephen, that's with a V, S-T-E-V-E-N underscore Hartove. Well, I, I wanted to point out as well that uh, Stephen's got stuff up on uh, Audible because we've got a lot of audiobook uh, people who listen to the podcast. Uh, so The Night Stalkers, uh, The Soul of the Thief, and In the Company of Heroes are all available as audiobooks on Audible. Nice. Thank you guys so much for uh, for inviting me tonight. I know I strayed from the uh, Holocaust uh, Remembrance Day subject a little bit, but... Um, but it's a, tough, it's a tough topic and it's an awkward topic. And, and like you say, mo most people are, are well aware of it now, but, um, you know, uh, it's, it's something, uh, you know, it, it's, it's something so horrific and of such a, a massive scale that, that we just, we can't let our kids forget about this. We can't, it would be terrible if, if it were to just wander away into the annals of history. Yeah, I agree. It's, uh, it's something that kids should be you know, they don't like to deal with things like this. And there are parents and teachers who don't want to as well. But um, if we don't keep our youngsters aware of what can happen, then it will. Um, so that that's why we need to educate them on this subject matter more than anything else. It isn't to make them uncomfortable. It's to make them aware of that human nature turns on a dime. And that's what I think is important. Thank you, Stephen, for being here. We loved having you. Thanks, yeah, guys. Appreciate it. Yep, I'm an underachiever. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> you are. Get, get, get your book going. Yep. <laughs> See, you just got to be a carpenter about it. You just got to you just got to sit down, create yourself a little writing room in the basement, and just sit down and just pound it out. Yeah, I don't know if you want me to be a carpenter about it because the only thing that I've built recently is a magazine rack. <laughs> so that sort of lends itself to a paragraph, not so much a. Uh, entire story <laughs> <laughs> man what a, yeah what a guy right uh it's so god he's done so much his degree is in act in theater it was not even in writing that's that's just amazing yeah well hey listen we've got 280 episodes of a podcast <laughs> that's something there right? is that got a following there you go yeah well, listen, that was that was really good. That was uh, super interesting. I, I actually do want to pick up a, a few of his books. Um, I do love that Black Hawk Down story. Like that's a it's a really amazing story. I don't know if you guys have seen the movie, but yeah. holy crap, mm -hmm. that's, that's, it's such a crazy story. Uh, was that Owen Wilson in that one? Was that who it was? N no, no. Uh, who was in it? There's a bunch of people in it. It's an ensemble movie. You check it out. It's, I'm sure it's, I think it's on Netflix. Um, yeah. So. Josh Hartnett and Ewan McGregor. That's it. That's right. 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 For some reason, I, I confuse that with the cast of the, the, the Hurt Locker? Hurt Locker? Hurt Locker, oh, yeah. sure. Hurt. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, very different movie, though. Right. But for some reason, I mix up the actors, but yes. Josh Hartnett. Uh, Josh Hartnett, where are you now? Whatever happened to all those all those early two thousand actors? They were really big for like five years, and then they just disappeared. Josh Hartnett's one of them. Orlando Bloom, what's he doing now? Oh, he's married to uh, Katy Perry. He's a little busy right now. Yeah, there you go. She's a handful, I'm sure. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. Um, well, that was very good. Very good job, Liz, I have to say. I thank you. And I, I thank you for entrusting me with a, a little responsibility. Keys to the car. <laughs> I feel all grown it, up. Brought it home on time. <laughs> There's no dents. <laughs> very good. I even put some gas in the tank. Look oh, at that. Oh, perfect. Look there at you go. What a, just a dream daughter, I tell very you. Very considerate. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> Uh, no, that was really super interesting. Um, yeah. I don't know. And the fact that he's done nonfiction and fiction and historical fiction is, I mean, those are really, those are three really different genres that some people just, that's all, they only, only ever like write one genre. So, hey, uh, we didn't even talk possible. about his magazine work. Yeah, it's true. He's written for the Journal of International Security, Gear Magazine, Maxim, Playboy, Reader's Digest, The Standard, and uh, something that I can't pronounce because I think it might be German. Haven't you written for Playboy, Steve? 
No, I've written to Playboy. To dear Playboy, I never thought this would happen to me. Exactly. Dot, dot, dot. Got yeah. it. Okay. Yeah. yeah. There you go. <laughs> Yeah, except uh, all of my stories end with, and, and then she left for no good reason. <laughs> <laughs> or she left with the other guy. Yeah. <laughs> and then my wallet was missing. <laughs> oh, God. All right. All right. Let's get out of here, people. Uh, <laughs> hey, Liz. Hey, Rob. Uh, where can people find us? You can find us on the web at atbanter.com. Hey, they can also drop us an email if they so desire at cowbell at atbanter.com. And they can also find us on social media. We're on both Twitter and Facebook. And if they want to call, leave us a message or comment on a show or suggest a topic for the show, they can call us toll free at 1-844-996-4282. Any callers yet? I'm not telling you. Yeah, really. Well, yeah. Well, wait. wait you, Ryan's the one we have to worry about. He's the one that was threatening to cancel, cancel the line, if we didn't get any callers. So maybe we did. Maybe we got a caller. We'll never know now. Apparently, I'm just going to crank call it. <laughs> I don't know why I haven't done that before. I should just do that. Well, I know you guys keep commenting. Has anybody called? Anybody called? You guys haven't even called. So shut up. <laughs> <laughs> It's true. I'm yeah. Call you so on that line from now on, Ryan. What's that? When I call you during the day, I'll call you on that line. Uh, it just goes right to voicemail. So I'll I probably hear it. Scare oh, okay. I'll just get the email going. Somebody left you a voice message. I'll be like, oh, okay. I'll go and play it. See, see people leave, make Ryan's day and just leave a message. You just Even just a hang up. <laughs> <laughs> just, for, just so we can get that email and be really excited. <laughs> Yeah. Make his day. Um, all right. Well, listen, that is going to about do it for us this week. Thanks, everybody, for listening in. And, of course, a huge thank you to Stephen Hartov for joining us. And uh, we will see everybody next week. This podcast has been brought to you by Canadian Assistive Technology, providing low vision and blindness solutions across Canada. Find us online at www.canastech.com. That's C-A-N-A-S-S-T-E-C-H dot com. Or call us toll free at 1-844-795-8324. For all your assistive technology servicing needs, call Chaos Technical Services at 778-847-6840 or find them online at chaostechnicalservices.com. 